Some people are born into where there's criminality all around them and there are some people who seem to go out of their way to choose it. He was one of these people that, despite maybe having some advantages, seems to have had an absolute attraction to the life of criminality. He was always described as somebody who was a kind of a sinister Dell boy, but he was cunning and, and manipulative and quite successful at it at one point. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He was the gangland fixer known as The Coach, and for decades he tried to play the criminal underworld, police and the media. Criminal John Trainer dreamed of wealth and women when he joined the ranks of Martin the General Cahill's armed robbery gang, but he would later turn on his old boss in favour of the new order under John Gilligan. Trainer believed himself to be a master manipulator, but in the end, he wasn't quite as clever as he believed and spent his last years living in a dingy flat in a washed-up English seaside town before he died in a hospice far from home. Today, I'm talking to Sunday World Deputy Editor Niall Donald about the life and crimes of the one that got away and the sorry end of the once powerful coach. This is Crime World Extra, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Niall, John the coach trainer died last week. No funeral arrangements yet. But, um, you know, he was certainly a very significant character over his decades in organised crime. And, uh, you know, many won't mourn his death. But um, no doubt it is uh, significant, especially in the this year, the 25th year of the Criminal Assets Bureau. Yeah, John Trainer was absolutely a larger-than-life criminal who um, stayed at the top of organised crime really for over a 30-year period, um, was involved in, if you look at the different phases of, of, of crime in Ireland from the, the bank robbery days, through to the drug dealing, through to the international trade, played a part in all of them. Um, absolutely big, big figure in the history of organised crime and possibly uh, one of the more interesting um, mm. uh, characters, I think. No, definitely. And um, we'll come on to how he got his nickname in a, in a while, but um, he was born in 1948 into um working class Dublin family in the Rathmines area. Yeah, he was one of eight children born in 1948, but possibly... Um, it, it would be fair to say he had a more middle-class upbringing than many of his contemporaries or the contemporaries that he ended up uh, associating with through his life. Um, his family were a very respectable family, actually. Uh, uh, they were involved in the in the pub trade and, and involved in the dog racing industry. So they were well known. Um, he didn't get, uh, he didn't have that sort of, uh, uh, that impoverished background that, so, that, that, that many of the guys he ended up uh, committing crimes with. But nonetheless, he was one of these people that, um, despite maybe having some advantages, seems to have had an absolute attraction to the life of criminality mm. from a very, very young age. And, you know, as a teenager and as a young man, he was already amassing convictions for things like larceny, car theft, and he did have an, a, a conviction for assault, though. I don't think John Trainer was known as a particularly violent man um, in, in terms of committing violence himself, but... 
You know, he was always described as uh, somebody who was a kind of a sinister Dell boy type mm. of character. He used pro- his brain more than his fists, really, when it came to his... He, yeah, notoriously thought he was cleverer than everybody else around mm. them, I think. So usually, funny enough, when you see those ones that come out of families that, uh, when I say those ones, sort of gangland figures that come out of families that they necessarily probably should have in an ordinary world gone on and just taken up normal employment, they'd be sort of, they're real bad ones, aren't they? Well, it's a kind of a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, a type of, uh, some people are born into where there's criminality all around them. Mm. And, and, you know, that's how people get sucked into that life. But there are, there's always been in Irish gangland and around the world as well, some people who seem to go out of their way to choose it. Mm. Um, and John Trainer was one of them, uh, you know, probably had a, a massive attraction to the, to the high life to the, you know, the the fast life, you know, was mm. uh, always described as a notorious womanizer and, um, you know, always wanted to show conspicuous wealth. And that, that, that he, he certainly had the, the notion that he was, although he was so in, deeply enmeshed in it, mm. that he was almost above it as well, almost above the criminality. Now, um, a little bit like Christy Kinahan, who also came from a middle class family and, um, you know, he he instead of being seen as an absolute cuckoo in the nest, he was accepted into um, into gangs that were you know from much more families like you're talking about and from much more working class backgrounds. He was embraced by Martin Cahill and probably because of what he brought to the table. Yeah, I think uh, Martin Cahill obviously was. You know, if you come out of the 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 1970s and the late 70s and the early 80s, Martin Cahill was the absolute dominant figure in organised crime in Ireland. Um, you know, he was obviously all over the newspapers, um, but he probably, Martin Cahill, um, became known as a mastermind of that armed robbery phase, as, as, as mm. which was the, the dominant type of organised crime at that stage, um, you know, focusing on bank robberies, but also mm. major robberies of, of you know, uh, social welfare, mm. post office, um, and then just other jewellery robberies. Mm. So I think um, John Trainer probably started off with Martin Cahill as a, a kind of a fence, as they call it. It's probably a thing that doesn't exist really as much anymore. Mm. But so he was, um, they were involved in burglaries and and he was involved in getting rid of the stuff, selling it on. Um but he also so he he would use his charm, his personality, his slight more middle class background there to be able to do business with whoever it was he was selling. Yeah, he was on. able to move in and out of a few different worlds. Mm, mm. Um, but he also became uh, like he obviously had the uh, John Trainer was obviously a very intelligent guy, and he probably brought to the to the Cattle Gang a bit of organisation and a bit of strategic thinking. Mm. Um, the 1983 O'Connor jewellery heist, he was involved in that in, in, some, in some fashion. That was a uh, spectacular at the time robbery involving two million euro, pounds, sorry, pounds worth of... Uh, of jewels from from the jewellery store in Dublin. Yeah, and anybody who's seen the film The General will, you know, that played a, a central feature in it. So, you know, what what you saw there was that uh, I suppose at that point that that those those kind of wild bank robber guys, they were all who had been young men who mm. had been taking big risks, 
you know, probably for sometimes for low amounts of money, they see they kind of reached their pinnacle in and around then where they moved into really elaborate, uh, sophisticated surveillance of targets, uh, gathering intelligence, um, you know, operating in, in, in a very, very tactical and sophisticated way. Mm. And John Trainer uh, played a key role in that for the Martin Cattle Gang. Often setting off alarms, you know, false alarms, so as they might might maybe come and and disable the alarm systems, and then they could go in and and open the businesses up and and walk freely through them, and those kind of tactics that wouldn't have before been used, perhaps. No, and I mean, I think it was it was at that stage they had a a, a sophisticated operation in terms of the number of people. Um, you know, you can you can read about and it, you know that that went on through the eighties, but that was the beginning of it. With, with, mm. with Martin Cattle was the, the 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 source of that. Then you see that moved on with the Hutch Gang as well, who operated those tactics. So really, you know, the planning was mm. was was at a really high level. And I think the and you Gardaí- can imagine the buzz they got out of it. Like in fairness, there's no doubt about it. But to kind of plan something like that and to get away with it and to be with the bite robberies and that, I mean dreadful for the, the the couple but nonetheless to walk away with millions and millions of pounds worth of masterpieces and to have got away with it and outsmarted everybody must have been the buzz. Absolutely and then you have to remember as well that you know there's obviously victims to these crimes and people who are held up with guns it's terrifying and you know lifelong effects in many cases but there was also these these were the famous ordinary decent criminals as well, you know. So while there was a, a, an acknowledgement that these were criminal acts, there were also these guys were regarded within certain sections of the community as, you know, who's going to feel sympathy for a bank that's robbed, mm. you know. Um, and so that so Trainer and Cahill had that kind of, uh, you know, cult hero status within certain sections of Dublin and, and Ireland in general. Now, Trainer at one point in the early 1980s was um, jailed in the UK to do with stolen bearer bonds. And he served two years and was allowed out on compassionate leave to come home to see the family, but never went back um, and lived kind of quite openly in Dublin, really, from then on. But I think a key point for him has to be coming into the early 1990s when the Cahill gang have these bite masterpieces and they're trying to get rid of them on the open market and discovering really that um, the more famous a piece of artwork is probably the harder it is to flog. Um, So Trainer is at the head, neck and tail of that and he's having meetings and he's doing this, that and the other. But at the same time, what you have is Gilligan coming out of prison, realising that the new game is not armed robberies, it's drug dealing. Um, he has made connections and and wants to start bringing wholesale amounts of cannabis into the country. And Trainer kind of switches allegiances to Gilligan, but not before he convinces his old pal Cahill to invest some money in an initial, uh, you know, drug purchase. Yeah, so which I mean, sets Gilligan up. Yeah, so Gilligan uh, and Trainer and Cahill were all contemporaries, all grew in the same business as heists. Mm. But, you know, as as we, we said before, the, as the the 90s, as we entered the 90s, there was an absolute other phase of gangland was about to emerge 
there was just the boom in in drug in drug taking in Ireland. Um, before there'd obviously been heroin suppliers and people had made money, but there was a boom in in recreational drug users, for want of a better term. And all of a sudden, there was it was it was a gold rush. So Cahill was still regarded as the godfather of crime in Ireland, and things. You know, people always said that everything had to kind of be run through him or he had to have a knowledge of it. But Trainer, uh, being a slippery and uh, probably deceitful character, um, seems to have decided that that uh, that that wasn't going to be allowed to continue and that there was a new there was a new dawn in town, really, mm. in terms of Gilligan. So, you know, these things are never these as is always said. Who knows the full truth of it? That mm. that that um, Gilligan and Trainer approach Cahill uh, kind of got his permission, a nod and permission to bring in a big cannabis seizure, but also borrowed money off him, um, a, you know, a six figure sum. Did mm. people say half a million? Again, you know, which would have been huge money back huge then. Money, huge money, and, I mean. and obviously Cahill at that point was under pressure from from uh, investigators into his wealth and all of that. So you had money probably that he needed to invest. Um, so then, you know, that is that is what happened. They took that money, but then there's always the talk. <laughs> they didn't want to pay it back. And there's always talk then of the, the double cross that mm-hmm. that uh, trainer in particular seems to have set up uh, Martin Cahill with the IRA. Mm. Um, that, that, you know, that he's 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 thrown Martin Cahill's name in with dealing with the UVF around the the, the bait paintings. Um, and also he's basically try he's basically possibly what, what we believe is he's slipped he's slipped a little bit of information to the IRA that Cahill has been trying to sell his paintings through the UVF yeah. and in is as such any business deal he would do with them would help fund their terror war. So yeah. that's a no-no. And he's killed. He's shot dead. And with him dies the drug debt that Gilligan and Trainer had, you know, started up their business with. I mean, what a way to start any business that your debt is wiped. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah, it sounds like the, uh, the Anglo-Irish bank type of, <laughs> type of uh, yeah. you know. You see within two years that Gilligan's drug empire is worth 20 million, estimated only. I mean, within two years. And that's because he didn't have that initial half a million investment to pay back. Absolutely. And also the the way is now clear, you know, that you had this big giant figure, Martin Cahill. Mm. He's also out of the picture. And Gilligan then has, you know, moves in and fills that void and mm. fills it fills it with a much again an as as these things go, an increasingly sophisticated international operation, which and also a more violent and probably dangerous operation as well. Mm. Now, Trainer, in the meantime, and we're you know we're into about ninety ninety four at this stage, as Gilligan is emerging as the biggest cannabis dealer wholesaler in the state. Tra- Trainer is basically playing all sides. We know that he's touting to police. And we know he's touting to journalists, in particular Veronica Gearan, who is all over John Gilligan and the Monk and everybody else that was around in those days. Um, you know, the Cunningham brothers, of course, John and Michael Cunningham. Um, John Cunningham later shows up with uh, as a right-hand man of Christy Kinahan. And um, both of them had been involved in the kidnap of Jennifer Guinness, 
brought up in, in Ballyfermot alongside George the Penguin Mitchell. They all knew one another. They were all one big, at one point, brat pack, most of whom, by the way, have lived into their late 60s and early 70s quite uh, happily yeah, without and- surviving uh, shootings, not to, you know, it seems to be the next generation that got more involved in that. But he was... He thought he was Mr. Clever and Mr. Charming and he was playing every single side. He was feeding Veronica Guerin information. He was feeding John Gilligan information. He was feeding the police information and he thought he was in control. Absolutely. I mean, this is this is the, uh, like, it's not an uncommon feature for, for people to emerge in, in gangland who, who are maybe overestimate their... their they're, they're cunning, you know. Mm. But he was cunning and, and manipulative and uh, quite successful at it at one point. And I mean, of course, for, for, before Veronica Guerin was shot dead, she was she was shot a non-fatal shooting at her home. And Trainer is, al- is always suspected of two things around that for a start and most uh, seriously for arranging that shooting. Mm. But he also seems to have gone to Veronica Guerin and in an elaborate series of information, put Jerry Hutch in the frame for that shooting. Suggests that Hutch did it. Now, what is his motivation there? He's talking to her, he's giving her information. She is basically telling him that she sees Gilligan as the big player he is. She's concentrating on him. She wants to know where he got his wealth. Her reporting is putting pressure on Gilligan, putting pressure on the police to do something about it. He's in the middle there. What is his motivation in setting up that shooting in 1995 when she was shot in the leg? Well, I mean, I think the, the motivation is to, um, like, there's always, uh, for people like John Trainer, they always want to collect information, even if they don't know what they're going to do with it. Like, it's a funny phenomenon that you will know yourself. These guys, they just want to know it all. Information is power, they, they see it. Yes, and they want to know it all. Yeah. Like, obviously, Jerry Hutch... Um, had, had you, by the way, you meet a lot of those in the corporate world too. You do. and, and People and, going around gossiping and collecting this bit of information and being the one to spread this bit of information and all. Absolutely, yeah, and we can all sur- identify with that. Yeah, it might surprise you. There's a couple of them in journalism oh as well. Oh my God. Um, but uh, uh, the, um, so like he, he was a collector of this information, but mm. also Jerry Hutch at that point is emerging as, as, as a really serious figure. So I think there is a part of that that, you know, he he was trying to throw shade on this rival, mm. this rival operation that that was basically a North Inner City operation. Um, he's also trying to um, keep sure, uh, keep pressure on Veronica Guerin, who was really, really relentless with these people. Mm. And you know, at that point, there was organized crime was 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 not in the the papers to the same extent. These people were obviously making huge money, and she. So I think he was trying to manipulate manipulate her, focus her on other people, mm. uh, build up a trust with her so he could direct her. He well, he was trying to control her, wasn't he, really? Trying to control and her. Trying to control she was her. out of control because she was also focusing on him and she was turning on him a bit. And I think he also was a bit afraid that people realised to what extent he was feeding her information. And he probably wanted to slightly distance himself and show, you know, maybe show Gilligan that he was capable of shooting her, yeah, and also showing doing Gilligan so that he that he could he he would know what she was going to do and what she had, and and in doing and so, turning a bit of trouble on for Hutch, and that was also is also the dealing with the guardie in that mm. way. That was always a, 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 a you know you always hear it, you know you're 
that rat is the worst thing mm. in the world, but you'd always be amazed at the amount of people that have back channels to Gardaí, particularly in those days where, you know, it was much less formal. Uh, mm. Informing to, to the Gardaí was really a, a vastly different thing than it is And now. like, do you know, the funny thing is, like, don't underestimate the power of that little piece of information and them knowing what's going into the newspapers because while the newspapers mightn't be quite as, you know what I mean, they're more online these days and news is quicker and all the rest of it. The fact of the matter is they like to be able to go back to those gangs and say, Sunday World are, are doing this story this week. Absolutely, 100%. So it, it's a co- total quid pro quo. They give a little bit of information, but you have to give back a little bit of information, which might be just the pre-warning. Actually, we're doing a piece on this or we're we're working on this or whatever. Yeah, this is the days before social media and you see yeah. now how important social media has become to organised crime. And Absolutely. Because it's a gossipy world. And I remember as well, Veronica Kieran, at this stage, I was young and you'll remember it yourself, that... Mm. There was, was increasing. <laughs> we were young, but they were they were they were increasingly. Uh, her profile was growing and mm. growing, and it had become a real national conversation. Mm. So that would have been a powerful thing for him to have that little bit of info on mm. what on what was being looked at. Now, also, she you know didn't back down after she was shot in the leg. She's she's very much um, after. Gilligan, he has beaten her up. She's taking, she's made statements against him. He's facing a possible assault case in relation to that. But she's also turning the screw on uh, John Trainer, who she nicknames the coach, by the way, because he's sort of coaching everybody. Um, and she's working on a story about these stolen files from the DPP. And the general, Martin Cahill, was believed to have stolen a hundred of these files relating to investigations, including the case, the unsolved murder of Father Niall Malloy. And those number of those files were supposed to have been left in a house that Cahill signed over to Trainer, and Trainer had access to them. So she was basically wanting to know where these files were, what he was doing with them. In the background, he's using them to try and get off yeah, he's using them to effectively try and blackmail the blackmail state. The state know? and the cops, yeah. Yeah, and John Trainer seems to have been a go-between and maybe stored them in, a, in an apartment in Dublin mm-hmm. 7 or a property in Dublin 7. So, that I mean, that was that was the typical mm. way of these guys, you know, um, to try and, you know, even to be smarter than the state was a, yeah. was a, was a factor. Absolutely, and they always sort of, they, they don't believe really in, in the state or in, in any law or ordinary society, they live outside it. So all that is kind of going on in the background and Veronica Guerin is very tragically shot in the June of 1996. Now, at that time that she's shot, Trainer is doing some crazy things in a car to give himself a, an alibi. Yeah, so I mean, he, he... So even though he knew she was going to write about him, um she had told him he still continued to keep in contact with her and keep trying to manipulate the situation um you know but what police believe is that during one of these conversations he mentioned that she was due uh to face a, a driving charge speeding i think um in in nice. she had told him that mm. she was due up in this nice district court in june and that of course is the is the the day in which she was she was shot, and mm. that so the day she was shot, 
Gardy believed that John Trainer gave that to the Gilligan gang. Mm. Um, in the meantime, on that day, he arranges to to be racing cars in in in, in Mondello, and seems to have had a crash. So he had a perfect, unshakable alibi. alibi. Mm. But that does seem to have been the the source of 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 you know he's the source manipulating mm-hmm. in the background, giving the information about where she'll be and mm-hmm. how she can be she can be traced. And he later describes how. A friend of his that night drives him to the airport and he leaves Ireland that night never to come back. Now, um, obviously he realised the enormity of this murder and what it was going to mean for all of them. Um, So the investigation into Veronica Guerin's murder continues. Gilligan's gang are identified as the suspects. They've all fled the country and the work proceeds to try and extradite and bring some of them back. But Trainer somewhat gets away. And yeah. uh, where does he show up next? In the immediate aftermath, he seems to have gone to Paris first. Um, he seems to have, you know, known that he that that this is gonna kick off, that, you know, probably had a greater insight into it than Gilligan that 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 the that this wasn't gonna be tolerated. But he had been very careful not to have his his um, his paws in in anything that could be directly involved in the murder. Um, obviously, there's he's involved in the conspiracy, but it's he, he's aware that he's going to be difficult to track down. So he seems to have spent time in Paris and then eventually moved to 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 Spain. Mm. And at what point is it that he ends up in Amsterdam? And I think you ended about there having a, a look at where what he was doing. Well, he seems to have spent time in Spain involved in, in car dealing, which was, of course, his, his, his legitimate his mm. legitimate background. Uh, spent time in Portugal. But sometime in the... Then he, he really fell off the um, the radar. Mm. Um, he, he goes was, missing, really, doesn't he? Go, he? He, fell, he fell off the radar as the other guys, uh, Brian Meehan, Dutchie Holland, um, Gilligan. Gilligan, are all brought before the courts. Uh, for various offences, John Trainer uh, appears in the media at the start of the uh, in or around that time, but then mm. drops off. Um, and so, uh, really, from two thousand, we don't know where he is. Yeah, but he pops up here and there. But mm. he eventually, he's he, you know, and you hear the rumours then over the next ten years that he's reappeared in Ireland every now and again, move coming in and going. But sometime in the two thousands, he seems to have moved and set up a permanent home in 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 Amsterdam um in you know and settled down there and lived a life under an under an assumed name for the most part mm. um he was living in uh suburbia in Amsterdam um he some at some stage towards the towards 2010 maybe a couple of years before he seems to have even uh invested in a in a bar a kind of cafe bar, typical. I was there. It's a typical kind of um, bistro kind of bar in 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 a nice area of Amsterdam. Mm. It was, uh, in the suburb where he's living. In this, in, in a place called Maastricht, nice, you know, very very Dutch, like you know. Um, I won't uh, attempt to pronounce the uh, uh, the Dutch name, but it translates as the uh, as the hungry goat. Right. Um, and um, he was living a. At, at that point as well, he was living in a place called Amstelveen. Um, again, a really, really quiet looking area, you mm. know. I know it's a different kind of country. Amsterdam looks, 
you know, but it, these are these are good middle class areas. And uh, but while he's portraying that he's a, a coffee shop owner and he's living in suburban Amsterdam, he's really set up as a drug trafficker. Well, he's set yes, exactly. So he's he's um, you know he's still uh, dealing with maybe with an Irish market, but he does he really has become uh, according to the, the Dutch police that I spoke to at the time. What they really was saying was there was a group of about twenty to thirty UK criminals for the most part, um, and that he was one of them. They were involved in drug importation weapons importations um, and he seems to really have been dealing with the UK market in, in to a mm. greater extent um, you know obviously that at that time in particular but you know and still you know Amsterdam really serves as a hub for that kind of uh, importation exportation of of of, of guns and on weapons and he seems to have uh, set up a business there and bizarrely um Despite the fact that it was publicly known that um, that he was uh, an informer to police and, and journalists, um, his old uh, colleague Peter Mitchell ends up there as well. Peter Fatso Mitchell, who was a key member of the, the the Gilligan Gang as well. And that time, twenty ten, would have been in and around when Mitchell flees the Costa del Sol. He had been very successful down there and had bought himself uh, uh, or certainly opened the paparazzi nightclub uh, but he had been he had essentially survived an assassination attempt which would later be suspected of being a Kinahan possibly yeah, he, hit. Mitchell was um, of of all of the Gilligan gang as they became they became household names as we all mm. we all know uh, not just in the Sunday world sort of household names but household names in, in all of the the newspapers and and to the media, but Fatso Mitchell was the one that seems to have thrived initially. He went over to to to, to Spain, the port of Benus, and um, seems to have made a lot of money and a lot of contacts in in terms of drugs. But ultimately, as the Keenan gang became stronger in Spain, they seems to he fell out with them, and mm. they seems to have ran him out of it. Yeah, so he ended up then in in Amsterdam sometime before two thousand and ten. Um, um, and living with, bunking up. Bunking up with Trainer. Now, Trainer at this point is, I mentioned earlier that in 1982, he had escaped a sentence in the UK. He'd served two years, walked out on compassionate leave, never gone back. He had another five years to, spe- to serve there. So at the time he's been investigated and arrested by Dutch police, the UK come forward and say, actually, we want him back. So he returns to England uh, not before he claims that he is has a terminal illness, which he doesn't appear to. He does have a triple heart bypass operation at the time, but he's returned to Wayland Prison and where he is um, incarcerated until 2012. Yeah, and seems to have, uh, by all accounts, thrived in prison as... as these guys do, you know. As a sort of fixer type. A of fixer it. type, yeah. a charming... Knows it all. Knows it all. Able mm. to talk the talk. Mm. Um, but I think um, by the time he got out, the age was probably catching up with him at this point. Well, not really, because still the ever womanizer seems to have got himself a woman. And uh, he moved at that point, I think, again, he'd still really been off the radar Um despite the fact that we had sort of caught up with him in 2010 in, in Amsterdam, that was only because he was arrested. Um, 2013, our own newspaper and Mick McCaffrey, our former colleague, um, 
was working on trying to find out his whereabouts after his release from prison. And he tracked him down as far as Margate, which was a small, sleepy seaside town. Um, had seen sort of glitzier days, really, I think. Brighter days. Was, was it a yeah. holiday spot? Or it state? was. And before kind of, I think, foreign travel and Ryanair screwed it up for so <laughs> many Irish and UK seaside resorts. Um, it was all of that. But uh, Mick went out to Margate at the time with some information and an idea of where he was, maybe with a phone number. But when he got there, he realised Margate, as all these places we always go to, realise they're vast and how the hell it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. But nonetheless, with his journalistic cunning, he uh, managed to get a trainer on the phone and... uh, managed to convince him that he was working for the Tesco superstore and had points for his card (laughs) and uh, outsmarted the old fox and he gave him his full address. Um, And that's how the Sunday World tracked down Trainer. But um, Mick approached him. Um, At the time, John Gilligan was released and in trouble, had been shot, had um, survived the shooting, but... um, was living in fear. And John Gilligan, at that point as well, always, uh, you know, John Gilligan, of course, couldn't always keep quiet when confronted with the press um, and was obviously appearing in court constantly with Cab. But whenever he did get a chance, he would throw John Trainer under the bus, blame him for Veronica Guerin's murder, accuse him of this, accuse him of that in any public forum when he had a chance. So that, that was the context of that. They were arch rivals, really. And and when, when tracked down, Trainer did exactly the same back on Gilligan. He said that he'd nothing to do with her murder, that when Gilligan decided that she was to be shot, that he screwed it up for everybody. Um, he, he was asked, did he conspire with the Kinnahans to have Gilligan shot? He denied that completely. He actually, in typical fashion, he named Trevor Byrne as the gunman and Trevor Byrne would later be convicted on on gun charges in the the Special Criminal Court. Um, At the time he approached him in Margate, he had a Sunday World under his arm, two weeks old, he'd (laughs) bought in some local shop there um, and had a good chat but denied everything. And in a way, again, used his charm because at the time he convinced, you know, us as a a media organisation not to publish his address because he convinced us that he was yeah, in Again, danger. he tried to do a deal. He uh, did a the, deal. the ultimate deal maker, mm, you know. He was, um, surely. You know, and always trying to uh, uh, manipulate the situation as it was. Mm. And finally, I suppose then in 2016 on the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of Veronica Guerin's murder, um, I went back out to Margate to see was he still there and to ask him what his thoughts were after 20 years um, and found him living in a really grim flat. I mean, it was it was grim. It was in a very sort of lowbrow working class area. He was appeared to me to be sitting in all day watching television. Um, you know, in, in in a dingy kind of a flat, and he was he just looked washed up and. Yeah, I think he, um, you know, everybody who who's, who knew John Trainer knew he was a very, very heavy drinker. Mm. Um, you know, that, that that was a big part of his life. And I'm sure that had a 
catastrophic effects on his health in the mm. long run as well, you know. I remember, I mean, funny enough, I, I uh, don't feel sympathy too often, especially for people who are suspected of being involved in the murder of Veronica Guerin. But as I had approached him, he sort of almost became an old man and he was desperately trying to get into the apartment and get away from me. And I was kind of hoping to God he wasn't going to have a heart attack in front of me. He was really red in the face and he was sweating and he was... And I remember afterwards, like, just kind of feeling a little bit bad. And I phoned a contact of mine and knew him really well and said to him, you know, gosh, like, he's nothing and he's he's almost scared. And there was just this silence on the end of the phone. And my contact said to me, don't go back. He would attack you in a second. Yeah, And it was literally like... That was my experience of what he was like, this sort of, you know, the scorpion and the frog story that it was in his nature. He literally couldn't help himself but to, to sting you. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really what his, his legacy was. Yeah, it's a legacy of, of, of spending a life double-crossing the people that he was closest to, you know. Mm. Niall Donald, thank you very much. Thanks, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. <laughs>